Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Tuesday, May 29th, 2012, and our special guest is Brian Alexander. Welcome, Brian. Greetings, Steve. <laughs> Fun to see and, you there. Uh, greeting to everybody else, too. Um, hope you can hear me, and I hope you're not being uh, run over by storms. You are loud and clear. I think you had a tornado watch today. We did, which is totally crazy. Uh, we are inland and we are mountainous, uh, so tornadoes are just kind of nuts. It also gives us bad memories of last year where we had uh, a big hurricane that knocked us flat, Hurricane Irene. I see in the chat box some of you are already enjoying similar weather right now, except for Anders. Anders is probably not having a tornado. Anders is probably enjoying just above freezing temperatures. Brian, thanks for being here. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project, and we're thankful to Blackbird Collaborate for providing this space. It is the fifth anniversary of Classroom 2.0. We have lots of fun activities going on there. Those of you who contributed a chapter to the book, we're close, I think. Um, Chris Dawson, our editor, has been under the gun, and he knows it, but soon those 130 chapters should be coming out. We're very excited about it. Uh, lots of activities there at classroom20.com. If you're going to the ISTE show, the conference, uh, at the end of June in San Diego, please do go to isteunplugged.com to see all of our sort of shadow conference activities. Uh, these are really fun events that we do that start with an all-day unconference the Saturday before typically have 200 to 300 people, and we have lots of fun. We're going to have a great after party Saturday night after Social EdCon, um, sponsored by Study Blue and Startup Weekend EDU, and it should be a blast. So it's theunplugged.com. We've had some really fun events. Uh, we have the Social Learning Summit in April. All of those recordings are up. You can get to them through classroom20.com or socialrunningsummit.com. 73 sessions all on social media, Web 2.0, and education. Coming up this fall, we have the Library 2.012 Conference and the 2012 Global Education Conference, both great events. The, the Library Conference is two days. The Global Education Conference is five days, 24 hours a day, 400 or so sessions. It's just amazing. These are all free, so do I'll look for those library2012.com or globaleducationconference.com. And it looks as though we're about to announce a Learning 2.0 conference with the Department of Ed for August. So just stay tuned for more information on that. Coming up on the Future of Education Thursday night, Khalid Smith and Nicole Tucker Smith are going to talk about their uh, lesson cast program plus Khalid runs the Startup Weekend EDU program, and he'll talk to us about that. Ruth, um, I, I don't know how to say her last name, Sueli, I think, on opensource.com. Uh, Christine DePaulo is going to talk about student branding. Jonathan Finkelstein on virtual communities. And you can see lots of fun there coming up, hopefully something that you're going to be interested in. If you've missed any of our sessions, they are all recorded. Elizabeth Merritt talked to us last week about the future of museums. 
the future of education as it relates to museums and what museums can teach us about learning. Mark Bauerlein talked to us about the positives and negatives of the digital era. Keith Devlin, the NPR math guy and Stanford math professor, uh, talked to us uh, all about all kinds of great things, including his uh, special MOOC coming up this fall uh, for math. Anyway, lots of fun, over 250 sessions, futureofeducation.com. So this is your chance to let us know where you're participating from. To the left of the whiteboard, you're looking for the star icon. It's the second one down. Click on that twice, and then click on the map. And you'll be able to indicate where you are. It's lots of fun if you put a note in the chat as well. Time, temperature, weather, country. And I'm sure we have well, we have a couple of international guests. I'm always disappointed when we don't. Brian, it's always fun for me to have a guest who elicits a lot of retweets, which happened for you today. Well, thanks for saying that. It's um, I mean, Twitter has really become an essential part of my daily life. Um, just uh, it, I think I, I consider it mentally to be on a plane with um, email and uh, GChat. It's just uh, part of my extended brain. The way I get to keep up with many, many people and learn from them, like uh, Gloria here, for example. Not to mention a bunch of University of Michigan people. Yikes. I'm really interested in that because Twitter is actually not a part of my daily learning, um, and you know, my guess is there's there's room for discussion there as we move forward. Oh, definitely. So wherever you're participating from, we're sure glad to have you with us, uh, Brian. This has been really fun for me. Uh, it uh, it felt like as I was reading your material, there were two sort of intriguing trends. One was this sort of enormous positive sense of the potential of educational technology, and the other was uh, almost kind of a world in crisis theme that comes through on sort of your personal writings and some of those things. How do those two play together? Can you restate? the first part. I heard possibility and then lost it. Sorry about that. Um, the two trends or themes that I felt I uh, uncovered in your writings today were, one, the positive sense of the potential of uh, new technologies uh, for us as human beings, and then the other was sort of this sort of dire sense of uh, peak oil and, and where we're headed. Well, um, I think that's a really nice stratospheric level framing uh, because I think in education we are right now at a nearly unprecedented uh, set of options where, I mean, a crossroads doesn't need to turn justice, where at a kind of mega highway overpass with cloverleaf upon cloverleaf. Um, 
part of this is technologically related. Part of this is a function of what's happening within the education world. And part of it is what hits us from the outside, from the rest of the world. And, you know, I, in, in a sense, this is the greatest time in human history to be a learner. If you want to learn anything, be it uh, auto mechanics or French literature, humans have never had access to so much material, so many teachers, so many ways of learning. They're not just media, but also pedagogical formats. It's, it's a tremendous, tremendous time to be alive to study, to learn, to grow. And the flip side is that, at least in my lifetime, I'm just 45, but this is the hardest crisis I've in my lifetime for teachers and for schools uh, from all kinds of reasons. Um, and beyond that, we're still working through the worst economic crisis of my lifetime. Uh, the most recent president of Educause, uh, Brian Hawkins, um, before Dan Albinger, Brian came to a nightly summit and gave a uh, wonderful, inspiring, somewhat terrifying speech where he said, as a retired man, uh, um, I think he was about 70 when he said this, that it was the worst economic situation in his life and the most dangerous for higher education. And he was focusing on the United States. Um, and naturally, this is both an international and a national issue. Uh, he pointed out that there was a, a shortfall of political support for education in the United States, as well as the economic stress. Um, uh, so, yes, yes, Stephen. Um, I, I think we do have this huge range of possibilities. Um, well, as Lisa says, uh, higher education was seen for quite some time, uh, about three generations. Uh, as the way to lever oneself out of uh, a place when one no longer to be in, be it economic, social, or, or even geographical. But right now, we're at this point where there seems to be a crisis of faith, that we don't see higher education as a way out. Uh, Gloria mentions that she loves being an instructional designer, that she's afraid her university will stop being relevant. These are the kinds of existential questions that we're asking now. I could dive into this at different points here, but, but please go ahead and shape it to your, where you want to go. Well, I'll keep us going here, because I am kind of intrigued at, uh, in politics and education and economics, it feels like there are competing narratives, different stories being told. Um, and in part, uh, both the promise, the promise seems to bump up against uh, almost a pushback that sort of increases the institutional and um, kind of compliance narratives. So uh, it, it feels like we're unmoored from knowing even what the truth is in a lot of ways at the, at the very moment at which we have more and more access to different points of view. So let's kind of uh, look specifically at education and kind of how our narratives and stories are changing around uh, teaching and learning. And, and you call this uh, a revolution that's sweeping through teaching and learning. And my question is, I feel that way, a lot of my friends feel that way, but if I were to go down to the local school, I'm not sure that most of the teachers would say that. Well, it depends on which revolution you're speaking of. Um, if you're speaking, for example, of the uh, rise of open education resources, most teachers won't speak to that. Either they won't know about it, um, or it's not a major part of their lives. Um, but if you speak about mobile computing, uh, and the full range of mobile computing, which means you have to include 
laptops. You have to include feature phones as well as smartphones, as well as tablets. And I think most teachers will see that as happening. In that case, the term revolution applies in its neutral sense, that uh, many teachers think this has certain benefits, many teachers are terrified, many teachers are simply curious and wondering. Um, I, I think if you speak of financial or political revolutions, I think every teacher knows from this. Um, it's, it's a huge, huge uh, series of conflicts being fought now. Everything from the unionization of teachers and staff to uh, the fate of tenure, uh, which definitely seems to be a pretty scarce creature on the ground now and uh, getting scarcer every day, uh, to the question of state and local funding for institutions, federal funding, the question of in higher education, the enormous student loan question. And we just cracked $1 trillion of student loan debt. Just an astonishing figure. Uh, how we get to think of this, uh, how we get to process it. I, I think teachers, depending on where they are, are uh, K through 12 versus academia, uh, where they are geographically, uh, urban versus rural, uh, their stage in their career. I think they'll be engaged in different parts of this. Um, I mean, I think in, in some ways this reminds me a bit of uh, not a period of revolution, but the uh, period in European history called the Reformation, where we have so many different, so many different changes rippling across in all kinds of different ways. Uh, Gloria, yes, I have heard of student in Mexico. Um, if uh, you want to put up a couple of uh, URLs for everybody else, that would be terrific. Uh, Twitter is playing a role, I know. Um, I'd also recommend the student movement in Montreal, where uh, Quebec students have been on strike for 100 days now, a really long period. Um, Steve, I hope you don't mind. I'm, I'm just I'm moving back and forth between your verbal prompts and people's uh, textual participation here. Um, I would type, but it's actually quicker to talk right now. Uh, Tracy points out a, a terrible problem. The teachers are often blamed for things that are beyond their control, uh, a key issue being the powerful driver of socioeconomic status in students' performance in K-12. through uh, Teachers have uh, very little impact on that. They have students for part of their time, and they have to shape that. Um, so I mean, that's one, one way the politics of this is being pushed or framed. And Lisa points out this being driven by media, definitely. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, you think about the huge um, way that, multi that print in different forms managed to carry the Reformation as well as the Counter-Reformation across Europe and the New World. Uh, we're seeing this in still early days. Uh, the web is not that old. Then go back to oh, Brian. Steve, you're picking, go ahead. go back to the first thing you said um, in this sure. question. And you have a genius, uh, not only for having a wonderful speaking voice for audio, but also for asking good questions. Um, how this changes teaching and learning is, in some ways, almost mercurial, and it's difficult to pin down. It's very difficult for us to assess exactly what's going on in teaching and learning across a single country, um, unless it's a very small country organized very centrally. Uh, the experiences are, are very, very diverse, so it's difficult to be able to grasp and uh, understand, much less assess, everything that's going on. Um, one of the, but we can you know, come up with some some larger movements that I think are, are quite important. Um, I'll just put these here on the table now. I mean, one is this movement towards decentering classroom authority, um, at least the face-to-face -face classroom authority where through mobile technologies and also through simple networking. We have 
no longer this position of isolated students and isolated teacher in a single room, but you have teachers and students immersed in multiple networks, both co-located and at a distance. And that deeply changes the way that teacher authority is configured, the way classroom discussion occurs, the way small group work is based. Uh, the second is uh, the very, very large movement uh, towards open education, towards being able to share content. Um, and under that header, I, I want to include uh, open access scholarship, as well as open source software, along with open education resources built to be accessed and shared equally and freely. Um, I mean, that is already, in its broadest sense, revolutionized or started to revolutionize all aspects of higher education as well as K through 12. Uh, we think about the political impact of scanning and digitization. Um, there's legal impact, but there's also the access impact of giving access for underserved populations to incredible resources. There's the way that some people mentioned using social media to uh, organize politically. Social media, part of it is predicated on, depending on your definition, open content, being able to simply read a blog post, being able to simply download and listen to, then record your own podcast. Uh, there's a very, very large motion there. It, we haven't really begun to think about this yet. Uh, if you go back toward the years, we could still talk about the isolated classroom experience. That's now a relic, something left over. We're in a new age of this. But please go ahead. I interrupted you. No, you're fine. And I'm uh, appreciative of you being so proactive as a guest. So in the K-12 world, there is a uh, kind of peer-generated movement by teachers to uh, help each other in professional development. That's sort of a bright light or a bright spot in the midst of increased um, high-stakes testing. Do you see the same kind, is there the same kind of peer support in higher ed that we're seeing so strongly in K-12? Because I have a suspicion that it may not be there. Do you mean among um, staff, teachers and support staff, or among students? So I was thinking mostly of faculty. Um, most K-12 educators who are active in the blogosphere are involved in um, lots of social networking. Um, but I'm not sure this is the same true in higher ed? Yes, but it's true in a different way. Um, weirdly, it's, it, it seems to be less visible. Um, we had a conference um, in April where Dan Cohen from George Mason University gave a quick sketch of the way grad students and younger scholars were using the blogosphere to do their work. And he referred to it as a kind of not just a visible college, but the Republican letters, that uh, if you wanted to research Italian history or cell biology, that it was now a natural thing to be able to collaborate with people through the blogosphere or through other parts of social media. Um, one problem with this, though, um, is that it is often seen as a waste of time, if not uh, dangerous or debilitating. Um, and I think that attitude is, is gradually decreasing as more and more faculty sympathize participate. Um, for example, the uh, American Historical Association did a survey a year and a half ago where they discovered that the majority of American historians have published online for the first time. They crossed a serious watershed. Um, I don't know how many of the historians were aware of it, um, but it was, it was definitely a, a major part of how the discipline had changed. Uh, I think you'll find, if you look at grad students, 
that almost every discipline in which every field has grad school grad school law groups, everything from anthropology to critical theory. Um, so I think it's happening. Um, it may be happening under pseudonyms. Um, in fact, it does happen under pseudonyms quite a bit. It may be happening uh, in ways that aren't formally recognizable. So you have many, many people who use platforms that don't have a .edu address. They buy their own domain or they use WordPress or Blogger. Um, but you, I think you're seeing this kind of collaboration happening more and more. Twitter is one of the easiest forms of it, one of the lightest and most effective. So um, you work for Nightly. You're this, a senior researcher for the National Institute for Technology and Liberal Education, if I've got that Correct. right. And I went to a liberal arts college. And one of the things I really appreciated about that experience was the opportunity to sort of think at a meta level beyond sort of economic success, but you know, what are the core issues of humanity and how do we address them together as people and how do we think of, about really important topics. Um, can you give us kind of a lay of the land? How are liberal arts colleges doing now? And are there ways in which these technological changes will augment their potential? Well, that's a terrific question. Um, let me let me quickly um, let me put that here for one second because Fred asked a question that makes a nice bridge for this um, in the chat box. Fred asked about um, one of the reasons the higher education is struggling with the change um, is there's the pressure to publish via traditional channels. The Impact, uh, scholarly communication is going through a, a real maelstrom right now, uh, and part of it is technological. You know, the, the ability to publish through ebooks, for example, the ability to use for campuses or other institutions to have digital repositories, which they can then use to publish preprints or re or hold preprints or to serve as a basis for new uh, journals and new entities to organize scholarship. Um, there's also the rise of open access for scholarship, which is now engaged in what looks like a giant battle with uh, many publishers uh, to see who gets to decide the fate of where scholarly communication goes. Um, the other side of it is we have a terrible grinding terror between, on the one hand, universities and colleges that demand more and more scholarship, more and more research output from faculty. On the other hand, we have a dwindling proportion of faculty who are actually full-time and tenure-track. On the first side, we also have the weight of scholarly publication through monographs and printed journals. On the other side, uh, along with the adjunct side, we now have the problem of cost, where the monographs are being read less and less, made in smaller numbers, and purchased less and less often while becoming more expensive. And we're having the huge price problem with journals. So it may be that we are in a scholarly publishing bubble, which could collapse. It may be that we are splitting academia into faculty who are primarily teachers versus faculty who are primarily researchers. I mean, that's, that's a major, major issue uh, right now. To, to focus on the liberal arts sector, uh, we work with about 150 small colleges and universities across the country. Um, Stephen, what, what school did you go to? So I spent two and a half years at Haverford College. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, in the Philadelphia area. Yeah, we, we've worked with librarians there, technologists, with a bunch of great faculty. Really nice school. Um, well, liberal arts colleges and universities are, are a bit different uh, from the rest of the US. 
and their response to technology is a little different um, in several reasons. One is I don't know of any other sector of higher education that places such emphasis on the immediacy and importance of face-to-face -face conversation, where simply being able to talk to people in the same room has such cultural weight as well as institutional support. So that has given a lot of these schools a resistance to wholly online uh, education. They tend not to support distance learning. Uh, blended learning is good, but they tend to use the classroom wall as the bifurcation for blending. So face-to-face -face learning in the classroom, then you leave, and then you can go online for discussion boards and e-text and everything else. Another uh, difference is that liberal education is, is how you define it is always a fun thing to define. Um, one way of defining it is to say that we have uh, intense focus on the undergraduate learner's experience. So we tend to focus our use of technology on that experience and less on, say, uh, building large um, digitization projects. So we're more likely to invest time in courseware or in, in what we used to call learning objects or the digital learning experience. Um, Another way of looking at it is the way that you led with this question, Steve, which is the way that we consider liberal education as the environment for producing a well-rounded learner who can learn how they learn at the middle level and approach a problem critically as well as from multiple directions so they can draw on the resources of multiple disciplines. So if you want to think of a stereotype, you can imagine a university graduate who went as a pre-med and leaves as a med student. And medicine, medicine, medicine is all they know. Uh, their first job will probably make more money than a liberal arts graduate. A liberal arts graduate will double major in dance and physics, and they'll have a minor on the side in uh, geography. And their first job, they might not make as much money. But their second job, they may make more simply because they are now better trained to be more flexible, to be more versatile, to approach problems from multiple angles. Um, it's a really I think a wonderful way of preparing a student for the job market, but also for life. And we tend to approach technology that way. So in a world of, uh, in this great world of tremendous content for the learner, um, it feels as though we keep, I keep moving toward a definition of the learner as agent. That the, the, the uh, an important part of our educational role is to help students become learning agents. And that feels to me that it fits very much with the liberal arts philosophy. I agree. I agree. There's, and that plays out on you know, a few different levels. Uh, one is the sense of um, active learning, um, where we don't have the passive recipient of, of lectures, but students actively making stuff even in a constructivist sense, where they're making knowledge as they go, um, an emphasis on arts and creative expression, as well as in the sciences, doing lots of lab work. And on top of all of this, uh, liberal arts colleges are deeply committed to undergraduate research, having students work at contributing to the scholarly discussion, uh, which is a, a rare and splendid thing. Um, at the same time, um, I think it's, um, well, hang on, hang on, Steve. I, I was trying to keep up with the with the torrent of conversation on the chat box, and it's just really gone at a, at a huge clip. <laughs> and let me give um, a little bit of advice here. If if you are having trouble tracking the chat, you can actually pull that chat box out and enlarge it. So just grab the top of it, double click, pull it out, and make yeah. it larger. 
the, the technical term is embiggen. You can embiggen it. That is funny. And in fact, um, it doesn't help that I'm also checking this on uh, Twitter, uh, where Gloria Santos had a wonderful line about telling stories to resist the stories being told to us. Um, Joyce? Um, there was a question about economics, and I, I, wanted, I, I think that's important to bring that up with um, our discussion of liberal arts, um, as well as uh, education as a whole. Um, the uh, one of the problems that liberal arts have is that it's it's not it's a, it's a very expensive thing to do. We our, our costs per student are, are very high. We have uh, very small uh, class sizes, and uh, we are committed to having lots of full time tenure tenure track faculty. It's the opposite of the MOOC, uh, or at least of the Stanford MOOC model, which is very low cost and. Uh, very low cost to offer and very very low cost to take. Um, and right now we're we're in a kind of cost crisis of, of how to be able to to pay for education both as as consumers, as students, as well as as uh, as service providers, as teachers and as administrators and support staff. So we have I mean on the we seem to be on the one hand of this great disruptive moment, the kind of disruption that hit other industries like uh, the music industry or better yet, the travel agency, where suddenly the internet has enabled incredible boost of efficiency and cost reduction. Um, and unfortunately, that can disrupt and tear apart um, an industry. So you think about travel agents, how many travel agents are left now after a couple of decades of travelocity and orbits and Expedia? Um, I mean, that's one thing that I know libraries, other cultural institutions, as well as teachers are looking hard at. Um, are, are we being disrupted out of business? Um, Tracy, yes. Oh, that's part of the problem of this. Tracy Hansen writes that we have scare tactics going on. And it's <laughs> there's an awful lot of fear uh, on different levels. Um, it's possible that we can, well, we know that we can offer education for a lot less money. Uh, it becomes a question of of operations, how it's done, um, and also of the politics involved. So, for example, um, you can fire all tenured faculty, teach only with adjuncts, use open source software, use open content, and uh, it would be a very, very inexpensive school right there. Is that the kind of education that the country would value? I don't mean that to be a, a, a rhetorical question. I, mean, I, I really want to put that out there. I don't know if we would value that, um, or where, or for whom. Um, it's possible that uh, we'll see a return back to about 100 years ago, where we have low-cost education available for um, the majority, and then an elite education for the economic elite. Lisa then that says, that's a question, academic freedom and profits. Yes, exactly. Uh, you may have heard that story about, um, a, I think it was a Colorado uh, adjunct professor who was teaching criminology who criticized university policy and suddenly is not teaching this fall. Um, Tracy uh, mentions that you might change the pedagogy from teachers to facilitators. Imagine this. Imagine a world where MOOCs in the Stanford model are widespread. And I'll come back to why I said the Stanford model in a second. Imagine those are widespread. 
and they're in every field, not just the sciences. You know, imagine being able to take a MOOC in philosophy and Russian history, sociology. And we have wonderful content. You know, we have, uh, whatever you think about him, the uh, Khan Academy content is really nice, um, especially for math. We mentioned that, we have this top-notch content. Well, if you're a school, if you have that content, think of those as lecture content. Then maybe your teachers need to be discussion facilitators. Think of the lecture versus discussion model. You know, um, you have students assigned to consume certain lectures, and then the faculty are discussion facilitators. Joyce put beautifully, flip the university. But then think about what we think of discussion facilitators. Those are TAs. Those are part-time people. You see where I'm going for this. I mean, there's an awful lot of possibilities. A transcript could be an e-portfolio, or it could be outsourced to somewhere else. Um, there are a lot of ways you could put this down. Um, Billy Meinke, I believe I mispronounced it, offered a great idea that instructional designers would always be needed to adapt. Uh, yeah, that might become a more powerful uh, way to go. And Audrey, hello Audrey, um, makes the argument, this is what Coursera and Udacity or Audacity are talking about. I mean, there's a tactical model though, Audrey, where you can talk about the classroom changing. Um, but I, I, I know it's Udacity, but I like the audacity sense. You know, that's a, for me, that's a better uh, homonym. Um, there's a tactics of it where, you know, Steve and I are teaching class on uh, Western history and um, he has a great voice and I'm pretty hyper, but we decide that we're going to record all that great voice and hyperness and put that in podcast and video and make it available and then we have uh, more time for discussion. Awesome. Terrific. At a tactical level, the classroom level. But what happens when that's the entire university? Uh, you can build the university that way. But Steve, there's a whole series of questions. Uh, why don't you go ahead? <laughs> there are, and I'm really glad that you're tracking them. I appreciate it. Uh, one of the things I'm wondering about is, in this time of um, change and opportunity, are you seeing smaller colleges differentiate in different ways by virtue of wanting to take advantage of this? And, and are they looking at this as an opportunity to, to do something different than the Ivy League university model? Well, it's, um, we can see the emergence of a uniquely liberal arts approach to technology and teaching, uh, where, as I said before, it, it's based on the assumption of trying to help deepen value and extend the small classroom experience. I mean, the, the opposite of that is the giant lecture hall. And, and a lot of technology in a big school can be designed to try to improve that awful experience. Um, so that's where you deploy clickers, for example. That's where you uh, emphasize the use of discussion boards to make space for discussion that a lecture hall really doesn't make possible. Um, that's where you flip the classroom. Well, in the liberal arts center, instead, you try to use a technology to say, for example, increase access to topics and resources that small colleges can't afford to do. Uh, so if you have a university of 40,000 students and you have a faculty member who specializes in Italian history in the 1840s, that's excellent. Small college, 2,000 students, maybe 200 faculty, you'll have one professor whose job is to handle the classical world, Roman and Greek, history, archaeology, myth, language, the whole shebang. Well, that's, that's a lot to cover. <laughs> and they have wonderful faculty doing it. 
but you can use online resources to extend that. So if a student gets very excited, say, about uh, Carthage and wants to learn more about that, that's beyond the class's expertise, the whole world is now available. Um, you might have uh, faculty who can teach Korean at large school, but there's no real way to do that at a small school. You'll have faculty who teach the most commonly taught languages, French, Spanish, etc. But if you want to learn Korean, you have the web now. You have all these different internet-enabled ways of doing it. Um, another way, I think, I just want to come back to this. Let me ask the chat room, how many of you guys are interested in uh, the digital humanities movement? You can raise your hand there if you want to. I you think. can actually click the green check mark or the red X for yes and no. Tracy, I asked about the digital humanities movement. Um, and if you don't know what that means, I can explain. But if you do know what it means, jump on board. Well, 14 people said yes. But well, one of the features about, I hear you, Ron. Uh, I'll come back to that in a sec. Because, um, Ron, your example is actually easier. Digital humanities, in many ways, is a creature of the research one university. Um, it's, it's the idea of uh, making large digital projects like, say, the wonderful uh, William Blake archive or the wonderful um, Walt Whitman archive. Um, one way of, of translating that to the small college is to have students help construct those. So we've had students in small colleges using the TEI markup structure to actually help expand and enhance primary source material online. Well, um, the scientists are already doing that because we have so many of our schools have scientists who are engaged in helping the students do research as undergraduates. Uh, in many ways, the scientists are ahead of the humanists and social sciences in that area. Uh, Haytech is a great source for this. Go ahead, Steve. Uh, while I scan and try and cram okay. in a thousand words in one second. Um, so I'm interested also in the connection between the maker movement, um, storytelling, um, you know, Ken Robinson's theater background. In some ways, it's interesting to me that some of the voices that are now informing the new thinking about education are going back to uh, less compliant, much more proactive models. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about digital storytelling and the role that it could play here, both as a um, traditional course of study, but also in terms of uh, how we think about education? Sure. Um, and uh, hello, Philly and Connecticut. I hope you guys didn't get the uh, tornado warnings. Um, what you said is very powerful, Steve, and I, I just want to pause on it first, because there's a, there's a lot to be said for this. When we think about emerging technologies or the impact of technology in higher education, um, it's, it's, I think, pretty, our, our default assumption is new things are hitting uh, and new behaviors are appearing, and that's all true. But it doesn't give us an, a lot of way to remind ourselves of, of old habits translating into the new one or being able to ransack history uh, for uh, examples that we can really learn from. Uh, some in the chat box, I think it was Lisa Lane, point out, um, that uh, when I made the Reformation comparison, people point out print, but also other technologies of print, uh, including woodblocks and uh, broadsides. Um, you know, storytelling is as old as the human race, um, and it's really astonishing to see it reappear in digital content. Um, Kathleen Jay gives me another bridge to storytelling. When I was referring to the Stanford model of MOOCs, 
um, that was to distinguish it from the DS106 model. And, and that's a, a smaller, much more interactive, much more web-based, uh, much more communal process. Uh, DS106 out of the University of Mary Washington, another liberal arts campus, uh, has been going on for a couple of years uh, where they have this open MOOC style class, but students interact with each other um, both in and out of campus like crazy. They're very creative. They're constantly making stuff, making story pieces, making media, making art, sharing stories. Uh, and they're also making some of their own structures. So they can use uh, Moodle, they can use Twitter, they can use Facebook. They often hold their own domains. Um, and it's, it's a very, very different way of learning than in uh, Udacity. I, I think. Steve I, I, and everyone, I, I, I was trained as a graduate student in the 1990s, and, and, and part of my background was to see nothing as universal, to see everything as relative, everything as contingent. But um, at least I would consider the Siemens Downs MOOC to be the same branch as DS106, uh, what some on Twitter are calling ER MOOCs. And we, but whenever we talk about story, whenever we find a human civilization, they create. Uh, stories. Um, they love telling and sharing stories. And they use any medium they can. And whenever we invent a new communications medium, we figure out new ways of telling stories with it. Um, if you're interested in technology, it's critical to look at the 1920s and 30s to see how people adapted to radio and used radio to tell stories in all kinds of ways. Uh, 1950s and 60s, people created concept albums because records had a certain long-playing technology that allowed that to happen. Uh, and now we've lost track of that because we don't have albums anymore. We have songs, tracks, right? Um, so it's only natural that when we invent new digital technology, we figure ways of telling stories with it. Uh, in the 1990s, there were all kinds of ways, including uh, digital video, including web pages. Um, since uh, 2001, we've seen an explosion of storytelling across social media, from podcast to web video to Twitter and the blogosphere. Um, my friend and colleague Alan Levine, who is now at University of Mary Washington, is now teaching DS106. I think one of you guys is a camper, or one or more of you are campers there. He's one of the great teachers at Magic McGuffin uh, Academy. Um, he has a wonderful uh, wiki on how to tell stories in Web 2.0. Um, and it keeps coming with more and more tools because we love doing that. It's simply, I think, part of who we are as people. Pedagogically, it becomes interesting because for teachers, digital storytelling is a way to communicate with the world, to share their passion, their enthusiasm for their subject, and to reach the students. In fact, early discussions of digital storytelling emphasized teachers making learning objects that were stories. I mean, after all, teaching through stories is as old as stories and as old as teaching. Right? Uh, let me tell you a story. Uh, as Aristotle said, aesthetics is about delight and instruction. We've been teaching stories from all kinds of time. Um, the other side so of Brian, that, I, Brian, I, let me just finish. I thought the other side of that is having students create stories uh, as an assignment in different ways. There are all kinds of support issues that we can talk about, but that's the flip side, having students become storytellers of digital tools. Go ahead. Well, I was going to make a connection between uh, several of your blog posts that I read that use sort of a scenario-based visioning process for looking at potential long-term scenarios. And it felt to me like that is storytelling itself as well. And I was interested in how that might map to kind of how we think about the future of education. Um, 
yes and yes. I mean, the short answer is yes, it does. Um, but I could probably say more. Uh, scenarios go back to the 50s and 60s. Um, Fred, my publisher, thanks you. Um, scenarios are basically short stories about the future, uh, where you present a possible future, and you present it to an audience in order to get the audience to think about what it would be like to live that way. Um, so you can think about, say, the Disney world of tomorrow, or you can think about um, the Department of Defense making scenarios, what happens if Canada invades the US? Um, you can think of businesses saying, all right, what happens if our competitor releases this product? How does that change us? Um, and it's a very widespread tool. Um, I, it's one of several ways of getting at the future. Uh, and I have a, there's a bunch of other ones that I've studied and used and talked about that I could talk about if you like. But scenarios have the advantages of being, first, very creative. And you have to not just make a new future, but you have to also think about how a person would live in it. And you have to think about how to pitch that to an audience that would recognize it. So you need to make sure that you include people how their lives would change. You include tangible artifacts. What a car is like 10 years from now. What your bedroom looks like 20 years from now. Um, but it's also role-playing. Um, somebody here mentioned using role-playing games, and this is how the best scenarios work. Um, say, Gord Holden will say, uh, I've got a wonderful idea in the future. Um, Moodle becomes the basis for all learning from K through 16. How does that change your life? Like, oh, wow. You know, um, so you might ask somebody who's an instructional designer how that changes their life. Someone who's a technology support person, how does it change their life? A librarian, and they have to role play that in the future. Uh, no, please don't die, Gord. Um, Jean um, or Jean, uh, Second Life is a great place for doing that um, because you can really, if you have the time and the skills, you can build up such a space. In fact, I think it's one of the strengths of Second Life. You can use games uh, of all kinds to do that. In fact, some some games are as science fiction, visions of the future. You can use Web 2.0 in all kinds of ways, um, you know, creating stories and finding people to do it. Uh, some mentioned collaborative storytelling. That's definitely a key part of it. it, it it's also not a simple thing. Um, if you say, all right, well, eight years ago, a lot of people thought Second Life would become, the metaverse would become the basis of our digital lives. So you imagine what that would be like. Um, and Minecraft has been a lot more successful. but. When you ask people to imagine what it would be like to live in a world where a second life is the architecture, or Minecraft, or in structure, whichever, people will say one thing, and they think about it, and deeper thoughts will then emerge. And a scenarist, uh, a facilitator, can then nudge people forward a little bit by a little bit, because the scenario sinks deeply into their minds and reveals things. If some of you might know the field of information management or knowledge management, um, it's a way, scenarios are a great way of taking implicit assumptions and implicit thoughts and making them more explicit. I'm glad to see so many Minecraft fans. Another one here. Do you want don't to explain give, briefly give a couple examples of them, Steve, or should I mention Yes, please it? go ahead. Okay. Well, ah, Active Worlds. I was using Active Worlds in the 1990s. Um, well, to build a scenario, you, you have to take one or two trends in the present, or things which you say can happen, and you extend them into the future as powerful drivers. So for example, um, two scenarios that, that I use in discussion are silo world and open world. You know, what happens if the silo architecture, the walled garden architecture, wins out 
and becomes the dominant way for organizing our entire media environment. Uh, from movies and movie theaters to gaming to course management systems to scholarship versus what happens if the open access, open content model wins out. Um, it, it's easy to get to, to see one or all of those as being better than the other, but just assume how that could change. You know, what happens, for example, to economic models? Uh, what happens to publishing or movies if we have open as a default? Uh, what happens to training if we have the cyber world as a default? What happens to authorship? You know, is it clear who makes something in these two different worlds? Um, there's a lot of ways you can play that out. Um, a gloomy scenario that um, I'm often asked to mention or describe is the long recession scenario, which I mentioned in 2008. Um, and I unfortunately have to keep mentioning it. What happens if the global economy stalls for a decade? Uh, the U.S. is halfway through that right now. What does that do to technology replacement cycles? What does that do to peer-reviewed journals, as Lisa asked? Steve, Japan's lost decade is exactly my model for this. Um, what, happens to, what happens to students at 18 when they finish high school and they've lived in a recession since they were eight years old? How does that change the way they approach vocational programs? How does the way they push student debt? How does it change the way they think about majors? Uh, Eileen, I'm a, I was a huge future problem solving fan as a kid, and they're still out there, they're still doing it, and they're great folks. It's a great way to open your mind. I just wholeheartedly love it. And futures is a key part of that. Here's one more scenario. Um, Fred just opened a can of worms. I'm not going to go down there because it's so big, and it's a really good one. Um, what if we look eight years from now, back at the 21st century? We look back at what happened with digital technology and realize that all the doomsayers were wrong. That what happened was an unprecedented birth of creativity, of popular creativity, a new renaissance where we have such a birth of people telling stories, making media, sharing art, meeting each other, where a kind of tidal wave of digital technology has swept the world and has created a whole new culture at a planetary level. As Gord says, releasing the genius of children, perhaps at least suggests making people better critical thinkers, I think definitely can help with skepticism. Imagine if that's how we think about our time. And it was a kind of golden age. And we weren't aware of it. We were too, too deeply immersed in it. Like fish, can't really tell you about water. But we've been soaking on this. And they turn around and say, wow, what a glorious time. The digital natives made us. It <laughs> made this gigantic world. What a tremendous thing. That, I think, I call it the Renaissance scenario. And you think about what it means to be part of that. I, I think we are now. Ah, human 2.0. Hopefully it's a better. Hopefully it's an upgrade. Um, there's a whole bunch of people who are responding to earlier scenarios, which I think is a good sign. Uh, my cat decided to come by. This is uh, Hunter S. Thompson. Um, this is uh, my cat, who is definitely a pretty big and curious cat. Yeah, I'll put him down for now. Um, Gord, isn't it funny to think that future shock used to be a thing? Where people thought that in the future change would come quick and fast and people would have a hard time understanding it. Um, Chris, to be, if you could tell me the author of Human 4.0, I appreciate that. Um, 
Thanks, Tracy. He is a great kitty. Um, but I, I think in many ways you can use scenarios, and what's more fun, it's, it's a lot of fun to make scenarios and share them with people, but I think it's a lot more fun to have people construct them together. Uh, I've been doing an exercise for the past year, I haven't really advertised this, where I take a group of people and have them do another kind of futuring method, which is called environmental scanning. Uh, those of you who are in the library world might know that the OCLC should do this. Uh, we basically have a group of people in a room and make them go through the news for the past two months and ask them to identify stories that represent trends of the future. So it could be uh, a new Coursera course, which suggests that that kind of MOOC is going to take off. It could be being in Magic McGuffin, that that kind of MOOC is going to take off. It could be hearing a data point that the number of students in Illinois going into higher education went down last year, which is true, the data point. Well, you take all these data points and you have a whole group of people surface all of these, and then you insist that they also identify ones that have nothing to do with education. Um, for example, I did this with a group in February, and one of them mentioned seeing an electric car that had a battery unit separated from the rest of the body in a kind of modular way. And they thought, wow, have we just seen software and logic hit the hardware world of cars? Okay, put that in there. Then you have the group put all those trends together and identify leading trends. Pull out two. Put that into a matrix. They can vote to pick the trends, whatever way. It's actually pretty easy to tell. And then they make four different futures out of that. So what if one trend takes off? What if it goes nowhere? The other trend takes off. The other goes nowhere. And have them collaboratively build four futures. I love this. I mean, for me, it feels like a liberal arts method. Very discussion-oriented, very constructiveness-oriented, but just, it's a lot more fun. You can learn a lot more from a group of 40 people than you can by yourself. Um, is this chat session archived? There's a ton of links here. I don't want to lose them. It is. And Excellent. you can access it either at the end by going up to File, Save the Chat, or in the recording, before recording, you can actually save it as well. Excellent. Have you come up with a question that you want to use for the end? Because we're three minutes from the end. I know. <laughs> we are getting really close to the end. Okay, so uh, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about your um, futures market. But maybe I'll just put the link in the chat and let people look at that themselves. Because that's another way, sort of, of um, a different way, but a way of also kind of gauging where, where we think things are going. Um, and, and then you did a report on open education that I'm going to put a link for in the chat as well. So for those who are looking for material afterwards, there's the uh, open ed report, open education and liberal arts. Yeah. Let me say a couple of words about that. Um, because when you hit it, you might go, oh my god, what if I hit um, it? My colleague Lisa Sparrow and I just context, Nightly is a small group or a nonprofit. We're also a virtual organization. There's about 12 of us, and we're distributed across the U.S. Uh, so Lisa's in Texas. I'm in Vermont. Uh, a couple of my other colleagues are in Texas. And every January and February, I love telling them about our weather just to make them cry. Um, I would do the same to any Californian, just by reflex. Um, but one of the things that we did, we worked together on are what we call new learning resources. Um, 
we look at what uh, major trends are happening in that area. We are now starting a project in e-books, so if anyone's interested in that, please contact me. I would love to talk with you. We spent the past year looking at open education resources, and we did a few things. One was we polled our network schools, 150 schools. We created a very elaborate uh, polling mechanism, um, and then we hit CIOs, library heads, IT heads, and just kept getting as much information about them as possible, what they were doing with open education, where they thought it was going on campus, what it meant, uh, what projects they had. Second, we interviewed a bunch of practitioners of all kinds. Um, there was a program at Bryn Mawr um, where they were using Carnegie Mellon's OLI tools, uh, which are really interesting. There was a dean at uh, DePaul University who e-published uh, and open access to his uh, textbook in chemistry, which is a great book. And he just had a dean he did this, which is pretty amazing. So we interviewed all these people, put that together. We prefaced all of this with a survey of what was going on in the larger world of open education. And then we ended this with analysis of where things were going and what recommendations we had for small colleges. So if you want to just digest all of that, there's a PDF. Let's see, it's like 50 pages or something. The link that Steve put in the chat box is to the comment press edition. So you can read through that on the web. And if you want, you can push back with comments at each point of the way. If you haven't used comment press, it's a great way to comment not just on an entire object, but on individual pieces within it. My clock here on the East Coast says it's 9 o'clock. Okay. And as I said, Steve we, puts out this great idea of social a, reading. Ah. As, a, as a courtesy, we do end on time. Um, and because we appreciate the fact that you've come on and taken your time to do this. So clearly, a conversation like this will never end. But um, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Um, there is a link to information about you in my blog post. Uh, if you want to put your email address in there or a preferred, um, there you go, perfect. We'll let people contact you directly. We want to thank you for coming on the show and for a captivating conversation. Well, it's been my pleasure. Uh, it's been wonderful to meet and learn from all of you guys. I look forward to working my way through all these different, um, um, all the different chat that I missed. Uh, I would love to hear from you guys too. Um, there's my little personal domain. Uh, there's my email address, and of course my uh, Twitter handle. Um, and let me thank Steve for patiently. Um, ready to cope with the possibility of me being without electrical power uh, and for handling this and facilitating it so elegantly. Thank you all. Thanks, Brian. You did a great job reading through the chat. You're a master. Thanks to Brian. Thanks to all of you for attending. Uh, coming up on Thursday night, Khalid Smith and Nicole Tucker-Smith, and then next week, Ruth and Christine. Take care, everybody. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are. Bye now. Indeed. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Brian. Terrific. And the recording should end right